It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 106 of the Night Talker. At 10.15, it is the first of a three-segment chat with stand-up comedian and author Sam Talent, ahead of his headlining shows at Joe Rogan's Comedy Mothership this weekend. And coming up in seconds, the NFLPA acts like it gives a damn about the players it represents, and the NCAA and NBA show they care a little bit less. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter at CourtesyWave. And do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. We are less than 24 hours from the start of week two for the NFL. Things kick off, pun intended, I guess, on Thursday night football. Seemingly decent matchup. The 0-1 Minnesota Vikings at the 1-0 Philadelphia Eagles. Many sucked on Sunday in a loss to the Tampa Bay Bucks, where even Baker Mayfield admitted to the media earlier today that he figured out the Vikings defensive play calls at some point in the game, which is what allowed him to find success in the second half. So they need to get that cleaned up. Meanwhile, Philly was seemingly going to roll New England in Foxborough on Sunday, but after getting two quick scores on the board... They went slightly dormant, but ultimately held on to win by, I think it was five points. I believe the final score of that game was 25-20 to over the New England Patriots. So both teams look to perform a little bit better tomorrow night. Of course, the big news from week one, more than any final result, was Aaron Rodgers suffering a ruptured Achilles Just four plays into his time with the New York Jets. Credit to the Jets for hanging on, figuring it out, and maybe getting a little bit of luck their way to go along with Josh Allen's propensity for turnovers and coming out victorious in overtime in that one with Zach Wilson as their quarterback. But the issue still looms. Aaron Rodgers now out for the year. Questions about what's going to happen to him going forward. Obviously, a ruptured Achilles is a difficult injury for anyone to overcome when you're talking about a guy who's in his late 30s, very close to 40. How much more difficult does that make it? Modern science makes it possible now. But as anybody who has reached the age of 40 understands, (laughs) it's not that easy. The PT and just your body's desire to heal itself. It takes longer for those things. I have a feeling we'll see Aaron Rodgers back out there. I don't think he wants to go out like this. And if and when that does happen, it will most certainly be with the New York Jets. But why are we talking about that today? Well, the NFLPA and their new executive director has responded to Aaron Rodgers' injury that happened at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. That field has a history of causing significant injuries to guys, oftentimes in a lower extremity. And the NFLPA believes that this artificial turf at MetLife Stadium has claimed another victim in Aaron Rodgers. Pretty much since the injury happened, people have been calling out 
for MetLife Stadium and the other NFL stadiums to get rid of this artificial turf, even this newer turf, and go back to natural grass. The new turf is field turf. Just like every newer version of artificial turf, it promises to cut down on injuries, but unfortunately, the proof in the pudding that is injuries still happening on those surfaces shows that injuries are far more frequent on the best artificial surface than they are natural grass. And now Lloyd Howell, the new executive director for the NFLPA, is echoing those same sentiments in a statement released early this morning. Quote, moving all stadium fields to high-quality natural grass surfaces is the easiest decision the NFL can make. The players overwhelmingly prefer it, and the data is clear that grass is simply safer than artificial turf. It is an issue that has been near the top of the players' list during my team visits and one I have raised with the NFL. Roger Goodell commented later in the day, so earlier today as well, with an interview on ESPN, that the issue is a complex one and the NFL will continue to address it with the union. Look, the NFLPA has a good point here. Natural grass is the better option. But it's not like it's as simple as just installing natural grass and letting that be that. There are potential pitfalls there and a lot more in the way of upkeep that is required. And so unfortunately, it is not a realistic option, especially for those stadiums that are full-on domes that don't have that retractable roof or in the case of what's happening out in Arizona, I think in Dallas also. I think Dallas might be this way too, although maybe I'm wrong about that, where they can literally roll the entire field outside to let it get the sunlight it needs to grow properly. I also question just how authentic the NFLPA is here in caring about this issue, considering that this is also the same association supposedly looking out for the best interest of its players that still somehow has not garnered guaranteed contracts for its players, top to bottom. Yeah, the guys at the bottom get paid a little bit more now and they have some more guarantees in terms of medical care and things like that. But the fact that you are the one major professional sport in the U.S. that doesn't have guaranteed contracts while also being the most dangerous of the major professional sports. Maybe say with the exception of hockey, but I would probably still have football edging that debate by a nose. Shame on you, NFLPA. Way to try and say or do the right thing here, but ultimately you don't care that much. You're going to move on to the next issue that makes people wonder whether you're actually in cahoots with the league that you're supposed to provide checks and balances against for your players. The NBA, their board of governors on Wednesday, earlier today, voted to approve new rules strengthening resting policy rules and punishments for star players that include national TV games, in-season tournament games, and sending out multiple all-stars together in regular season games. Teams must refrain from any long-term shutdown or near shutdown when a star player stops participating in games or plays in a materially reduced role in circumstances affecting the integrity of the game. Yeah, this isn't rot with pitfalls. This isn't rot with subjectivity here. 
The rule ultimately gives the league office authority for greater oversight over discipline for missed games and an ability to find teams over $1 million for each instance of violating resting rules. By the way, that in-season tournament is so stupid. That's what the NBA thinks of its regular season, though. They realize how little people actually care about that regular season to where they're trying to instill a mid-season championship. Guys win money. I guess it'll be more exciting, but will it be? Or is it a very synthetic effort to generate interest? And real quick before the commercial break, need to take a chance to take another shot at the NCAA and just that putrid organization and their attempt to prove that they do still maintain authority. Iowa defensive tackle Noah Shannon had appealed the NCAA regarding his year-long suspension over his admission that he had placed a bet on a completely different sport from football, but one that involved the Iowa Hawkeyes team. Well, the NCAA has decided to maintain his year-long suspension. So the Hawkeyes don't get him this year. And here's the issue with this. You can say, yeah, well, gambling is wrong, though. You're right about that. The guy came forward and admitted his wrongdoing, didn't understand that it was against the bylaws. And here's the NCAA taking this hard line against this poor Iowa football player when they have a bunch of other dudes who are guilty of much more serious things, and they're still making an example out of him as well. So shame on you, NCAA. All right, coming up, it is the first of a three-part conversation with stand-up comedian Sam Talent, ahead of his headlining shows at Joe Rogan's Comedy Mothership this weekend. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Sam Talent is a stand-up comedian and best-selling author whose new book, Running the Light, is a fictionalized account of a longtime entertainer and stand-up comedian whose life is going completely off the rails. You can get that as well as follow him through social media and check out his tour dates at samtalent.com. That includes some headlining shows this weekend at Joe Rogan's Comedy Mothership. Shows are sold out, but I do highly recommend you check the Mothership out at some point. Go to Comedy Mothership dot com for tickets and more info sam thank you so much for the time how you doing today oh trey i'm uh, overwhelmed with gratitude to be on a podcast that's centered on books as opposed to just like another where do you get your ideas from stand-up comedy podcast so thank you for having me yeah unfortunately a lot of radio people in the last 10 to 15 years have really ruined it for all of us and even though i do have books on pod i also pride myself on conducting these interviews for a radio show that I do here in Austin on ESPN Austin, but it's far too often turned into uh, a lot of morning hosts who are maybe hopped up on uh, on something that uh, that Billy Ray uh, might find appealing, just trying to set you up for your jokes that you're going to be telling that weekend. But I like having more in-depth conversations with things. And if we can add you actually getting to write a book and what that process was like and some of the different decisions that you went into it as well, I mean, sign me up, dude. Thanks, man. Yeah, the morning radio, like doing radio when you're on the road now, truly feels like a waste of time to like promote shows. Because you're like, oh, so I'm appealing to people on Friday morning who are up at 6.30 a.m., which means they woke up at like 5 to go to work. 
they're definitely not going to be eager to go to a show that evening at 930 because they have to be back at the foundry or behind the wheel of the forklift the next day. So, yeah, and then you sit there with these radio guys and they're like, you'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, it's my first time in Appleton, Wisconsin. I'm glad to be here. Where should I eat? And they'll be like, so, Sam, they just like totally avoid anything uh, organic you bring. And they'll be like, so I heard that you have a problem with screen doors. And you're like, oh, damn it. I just have to do my awful jokes for a crowd of two. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm glad to be on this pod instead. Unfortunately, people... wait, can I swear? Do I swear on this? You can swear. As a matter of fact, it's going to appear on the radio show tonight. But I am happy to mark swear words and then it'll be a free for all on the podcast itself. So, yeah, you need to say f- or, sh- or any other cuss word have at it okay i'll try to avoid swearing i'll i'll play at the top of my intelligence for uh, your more erudite readers and listeners there we go before we get into running the light which is a book that uh, i actually consumed via the audio book which isn't always the case and uh there's some details with that we can have some fun with you are headlining at Joe Rogan's Comedy Club, not just this weekend, but tonight. You are doing a, a Sam Talent and Friends show on September 13th at the Mothership. Now, I know yeah. this because I saw the pictures. You've actually had a chance to perform at this club sometime in the last couple of months. What were your initial impressions of Rogan's new place? Sincerely, it's a completely, perfectly orchestrated Shangri-La for mm-hmm. comedians. Um, very rarely do you see a blueprint be so masterfully executed as you do at his club. Um, There's really no impediments to just being very funny at his club. And uh, yeah, I'm just so sincerely grateful to have been taken in uh, by Adam Egott and by Joe and by the great staff there. It has a real like uh, fun familial atmosphere and uh, selling out the shows this weekend was a very nice feeling. And, you know, like last night, it's like Gary Clark Jr.'s in the green room and it's me and Ron White uh, busting his balls as Adam Ray is uh, dressed in Dr. Phil makeup. Like I call my dad every night after the shows and just like give him the updates. And he's like, are you sure you didn't hit your head, son? Like this sounds like a surreal fever dream. And that's kind of what it's like there. And I've never experienced that before in comedy. So I had the pleasure of knowing Gary way back in the day, like when he started making a name for himself musically. And like even as a teenager who was uh, getting in illegally into these uh, bars and clubs on 6th Street, not to just play, but also maybe uh, indulge a little bit in the booze. Gary was always an awesome dude, like the humble, most down to earth guy. As a matter of fact, I've run into him a couple of times over the years and he's oftentimes been the one who recognizes me first and comes over and says hello, which he certainly doesn't have to do at this point. I mean, he's this worldwide rock star, but it just speaks to the uh, type of person that he is. Interestingly, I know that you are a uh, Colorado guy. You're based out of Denver, correct? Yeah, I'm from Denver. Excuse me, but um, my wife and I put all of our stuff into a storage container. So she took six months off work and we're just kind of vagabonding right now. So I don't really have, I have like a PO box in uh, my hometown, but that's the only address that I have. Badass man. Good on you for being able to do that. I've got a seven and nine year old at home. So unfortunately that dream uh, can no longer be a reality for a few more years. But the last time I saw him was on a flight to Denver where my wife and I were taking Memorial day weekend to just go enjoy the city, but also go see him live at red rocks. And it was our first time to go to what is, maybe one of the top 
live performance venues on the planet, but we saw him on the plane ride there. Like he and he and his crew and his family were, they're just taking a big trip up there and they were riding coach and Gary was his typical cool self too, man. Yeah. Yeah. He's so humble and so uh, profoundly gifted and the crossover of that Venn diagram is uh, exceedingly rare, especially when you get closer to closer to, you know, I don't want to say masters, but who plays guitar better than him? You know, not many people, not many people. And he's got such a unique sound too, that uh, even if you make the argument for others, when you hear Gary playing the guitar, you know pretty quickly who it is. Yeah, man, last night, Ron White's telling us about when he first started coming to Austin in like 1968, 69, he was 15 years old. And he would stay at some house on Fifth Street that a professor owned, and he would go sneak into shows. And as soon as he said that, Gary and I, like in unison, were like, dude, did you ever see Rocky Erickson? And Ron White is like, oh, yeah, I saw him a bunch, you know, and it's just like me and him rapped listening to Ron White. It's just like it's I'm not trying to name drop. I'm just trying to like kind of communicate like what a special place that Rogan has created, you know? Yeah. What do you think about Austin on the whole? Like, I feel like I have a pretty good pulse on comedians coming through town, but obviously this scene has changed a ton in a positive way over these last couple of years. Do you have a history of coming to the city, maybe at Old Cap City or performing at someplace else? And if so, what have your impressions of Austin crowds been like over the years? Yeah, I've been coming to Austin for years now. I was a Velveeta Room guy. Oh, yeah. I was uh, I was always a Valve dude because like Pat Dean and Jay Whitecotton got me in there early. And there's so many funny people uh, in Austin historically. Some of the funniest people in America have come out of Austin for years and years. So it's always been a blast to come down here. But those Valve crowds and Cap City crowds, sometimes Cap City, you'd have more of a suburban situation. And at the Valve, it could be touristy because it was right there on 6th Street. So um, the people who go to Rogan's Club are like, they have such a high comedy IQ, you know? They're like uh, connoisseurs of comedy. Hmm. So I think that um, the crowds there are, I don't know if I don't know if I can say the best in America, but it's really hard to compete with the people who go see those shows because they're so excited and like, you know, they love William Montgomery. They love Duncan Trussell. They love... Uh, like Ron White, like they're all across the board on people who they love, you know? And it's like, I don't know. It's just, it's a very unique situation. And it, it's really cool to be in there. Yeah, discovering newer guys like Aman, uh, Asan Ahmad and uh, Derek Poston and obviously Brian Simpson's really starting to make oh, a name dude, for himself. dude, and Cam, that kid Cam who's on Kill Tony, he's oh, yeah. so funny. Oh my God, and he's so excited. And he just like brims with this uh, this palpable joy, like, yeah, being around those dudes is uh, it's reinvigorating, you know? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Velveeta Room. That's how I know you're legit. If Of all the uh, the places to talk about where stand-up has been performed, I saw Stanhope there. God, this had to have been about 20 years ago, and it was one of those touristy crowds. And, of course, Stanhope is Stanhope, and he has zero patience for any of that BS. But uh, he was letting the crowd have it that night, man. It was one of those uh, legendary moments for me as having seen just – countless stand-up acts over the years that I would, I imagine is how people felt at times watching Bill Hicks back in the late eighties and early nineties. Yeah. I mean, Stanhope is just, he changed my life and I, uh, I love him dearly, but to see him in the Velveeta room 20 years ago would have been a real treat. How did he change your life? Uh, the book, he, uh, 
he was like the earliest big fan of that of the book that I wrote and mm. he was talking about it nonstop. He was tweeting about it nonstop because Mishka Shubali got him my book and then next thing I know I w- went down there and stayed with him for like a month on and off during quarantine and him you know just up on the pulpit espousing the virtues of my book was like I mean he put a lot of money in my pocket he sold a lot of units and he uh exposed me to his you know fervent fan base I guess is the best way to put it you know uh and a lot of people show up to my shows now just because Stanhope put me on I mean you can't have a more uh legitimate voice uh as far as Stan open, if he says you're funny, then you know that someone's funny. What is daily like life like in Bisbee? Bro, it's so reserved. Um, it's not like the carnival atmosphere. I think a lot of people assume it to be. Hmm. Um, he wakes up very early, starts with coffee. It would be me and him like sitting around uh, outside in front of his home, smoking cigarettes, swatting flies and reading. It would just be like quiet reading. Um, Every now and then I would like show him a sentence from the thing I was reading or he would like read to me aloud from whatever he was reading. And then right around like two o'clock is when the cocktail hour starts. And then the only calories that man consumes are from like liquor and caviar. I have no idea how he's alive, but uh, he's built this fraternity of people that his friends are his family. And he has such a nice open door policy in that small town. I mean, it was almost not even like a sitcom because it wasn't like that funny all the time. It was more like a salon, you know, it was like Paris in the 30s, but in 110 degree heat. It was <laughs> it was it was really special, man. He is stand up comedian Sam Talent, also the author of the new book, Running the Light. Coming up more with Sam on the other side. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Back with stand-up comedian Sam Talent, also the author of the excellent new book, Running the Light. Stan Hope is one of the many comedians who provided their voiceover skills for the audio version of your new book. I guess it's not so new now, but the book is called Running the Light. It is about a comedian who has seen... A lot of highs and lows as an entertainer and is on a very self-destructive path. And in listening to this book, because I actually did listen and not read for once, I typically like to read, but I'm glad I did the audio book now to hear all these different comedians contribute to a chapter. It felt like the main character in this book, Sam, was an amalgamation of a bunch of different guys over the years. Like I felt like there may have, there's probably a little bit of Doug Stanhope in there and maybe some Bill Hicks. Perhaps some Sam Kinison, maybe a little bit of Chris Farley. Were there a bunch of different comics that you were thinking about as you were putting this character together? And if so, did I miss any? Yeah. I mean, amalgamation is uh, the perfect word. Um, I mean, all those guys definitely factored into um, my idea of what I think an entertainer is, everyone you named. Um, But I think the stories that are in that book are much more taken from my personal experience on the road and also opening for people. And, you know, I never 
lived uh, concurrently as a comedian in the time of Bill Hicks or Kinnison, but um, there's guys like Rick Kearns and Troy Baxley and uh, Laurie Callahan who were all like the mountain time zone legends that I came up opening for. And, uh, you know, I started stand up when I was 18. So I was like 19, 20 in the car with these just unrepentant beasts, you know, just kids crawling around without skin and just going from stimulation to stimulation. And, uh, yeah, I saw a lot of, uh, truly deplorable behavior, but at the same time, the most exciting stuff when you're a kid is to see someone kill while all also living like some kind of like land pirate, you know, like you're with them all day and you're like, there's no way this person's going to survive till seven 30. <laughs> they're going to just be a fall down bag of booze. And then they get up there and they're just, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're a message from God in, in, in Gillette, Wyoming or in Brookings, South Dakota. Like they're going up in these places that comedy is not like a respected art form and i would even argue it's not an art form it's more of a craft or like a parlor trick hmm. and to see them go up against the heaviest stacked odds on like a monday night in uh aztec new mexico when they turn off the monday night football game and it's like dollar beer night they just throw them to these sharks these people who don't really have any i don't know time or patience for you to like build a bit or do anything nuanced and to watch them kill like that was very heartening um as a young performer and there's so many comics like that on the road who people have never heard their names unless they happen to see them uh in their small town and they're very good comedians and they they do the job in a way that a lot of people can't do um because these are they're not performing for their fans they're not preaching to their individual choirs they're going up to people who don't care about comedy uh, and that was like, those were the people that I learned from and a lot of their stories and a lot of the things that I saw them do or uh, did alongside them are, uh, kind of cold for this book. I love talking with people who have written books, especially their first book, because people tend to either love or hate that process. For instance, Tom Papa is really good at writing books. And he loves yeah. writing books, too. It's just another way that he can express himself creatively. But I was talking mm -hmm. to Greg Fitzsimmons several months ago before he was opening at The Mothership. And he had written a book like 10 or 15 years ago. And it was a hilarious book, too. A really unique, interesting premise. And I asked him if he had another one in him. And he was like, absolutely freaking lutely not. That was such a huge thorn <laughs> in my side. I'm glad to never have that burdening me going forward. So did you enjoy or have a hard time with the book writing process leading up to this final result? Bro, if I could just like move to Paris and write books for the rest of my life, I would do that in a heartbeat. Hmm. I just got back from like two, three weeks in France uh, on Friday. I flew right to Boston, did the shows at Laugh Boston and came here to Austin. And yeah, like I really love writing. I love solving the problems uh, moment by moment that you have to do when you're in front of the computer. Uh, I love prose. I love the poetry of the page. I mean, all the pretentious stuff about like literature is my favorite stuff in the world. Like the nuts and bolt, like the words into sentences, into paragraphs, into pages. Like I never was educated on how to write. I just read a whole bunch and then sat down and started writing. And I think that I learned how to write just from I mean, dude, I, my rule was I would get a thousand words a day. 
Wow. Uh, and if that took me literally eight hours, like on my next book that I'm working on, it's like you have to be in front of the computer until you have a thousand words. And if you hit a thousand words in three hours, typically it's a bunch of dialogue. You know, it's not like the actual connective tissue that like nutritious tendon around the bones. Um, then you keep going. But sometimes when you're, I, I was writing this scene about a ride from, an, from like, you know, the airport to the hotel that takes place in uh, Europe. And that took me like 11 hours to get a thousand words on that because it's like, how do you describe like apartments and row homes and the spaces between them? Like that stuff is the real hard work of writing, but I really get off on it. I mean, I'm so, I'm just, again, I'll say grateful again, cause that's all I'm defined by my gratitude. So I'm so grateful. Uh, and I say grateful a lot because that's like how I go through the world. It's just with gratitude. Uh, I, I, that people want to see me do stand up or that they give, you know, a, a care at all about what I'm doing on stage. But like, I think I could be really happy just writing books um, in a very pretty location somewhere in Western Europe. I don't know how long that would last, but I would like to try it for an extended period. It feels like there is a deliberate attention to detail that suggests that you are influenced by Hemingway. Am I seeing that correctly? I think that I'm much more influenced by the people who were either concurrent with Hemingway or came before him. Like I love Sherwood Anderson hmm. a lot. Uh, Sherwood Anderson was a huge influence on both Faulkner and Hemingway. I love Faulkner a lot. I love Flannery O'Connor. Um, I think I'm also influenced by the people who were influenced by Hemingway, whether it be Larry Brown or Carter Simon Colors or um, even Donald I mean, Dennis Johnson's my favorite author. I like Hemingway. Hemingway's great, but um, I also like uh, I also like sentences that are longer than six words. I like commas. Uh, I like Cormac McCarthyan. Uh, uh, I, I love when you use and seven times in a sentence. I mean, that Hemingway, like very sparse, pared down writing is very effective and it's a hammer. But uh, I also enjoy employing more tools um, and reading a, a, a wider variety of, uh, of writing than Hemingway. You had so many different comedians provide their voices for the different chapters in this book, as I mentioned previously. Was that an idea? that was in your head from the jump or if not at what point did somebody or, or something remind you that this was not just an option but an option that would be a lot of fun to play with yeah that was like a master stroke of marketing that's like the smartest thing i've ever done because <laughs> you have ari shafir you have chris gethard you have uh dan soder you know tim dylan stan hope mark Marin, burt kreischer you have every aspect of modern American comedy. Uh, so like to get people who love Ari Shafir to also buy a thing that Chris Gethard is in, there's not a lot of crossover in those two fandoms. So, um, I mean, Trey Crowder's in there, David Borey, Adam Caton Holland, like a lot of my friends and a lot of my heroes read this book. Shane Gillis does a voice during the Stanhope chapter. Um, yeah, dude, I mean, it seemed like an easy way to get the uh, book in front of a lot of different people's ears um, because each of them, you know, they did it for free too. No one charged me a dime for that. Wow. Uh, so like the fact that they took time out and read that and then posted about it and talked about it, like, yeah, that was just like a real cheap marketing ploy on my behalf. 
Was that a matter of you just reaching out to everybody individually to asking for a favor? Yeah. Yeah. I just texted them all and I was like, Hey, would you want to read this? And a lot of them liked the book and you know, comedy got behind the book and they've, they've all kind of championed it as like, I'm going to quote other people, but you know, Marin saying it's the definitive work of fiction about comedy or Stanhope saying the best representation of comedy in any medium ever. Like, I think everyone wanted to be able to read on there. I had other people asking if they could read just because, you know, fans of big C comedy have embraced this book and the people who read it are now in their heads and they've, you know, signed on as this thing being legitimized. So I don't think it was that hard of a, of a sell to them. Tim Dillon's just very busy. They're all very busy, Burt Kreischer. So when they would send in what they read, it was like, there was no second takes. There was no me giving notes on it. There was just me giving an emphatic thank you, no matter what they gave me. Yeah, I feel like Tim Dillon, because he is a busy dude, obviously. He's got his podcast. Yeah. He's a hilarious dude. Like, he started out really passionate about it. But I feel like halfway through his chapter, he was just trying to get it done, man. And I know people have criticized him for that. I don't fault him at all for that. It was just like an amusing side note to his yeah. reading of the book, though. Oh, bro. I, dude, Tim Dillon, who literally could this day, him taking the two hours to read it, like, I would never, ever begrudge what he gave me. Right. And I think people like, I mean, people have been more up Ari Shafir's, uh, I don't want to swear, but they've, they've been inside of Ari because he kind of reads it in a sing-songy voice. Yeah. It's like he's reading a storybook. And it's like, Ari's a great reader of fiction. He's also a hell of a writer. He's been, he took this uh, class in Paris for two weeks on like uh, writing. And I know that he's a very talented writer. Uh, you know, he's in his nascent period of being an author right now. But mm. yeah, it's just like realize how busy these people are and that they did everyone a favor by reading anything of this book. He is stand-up comedian Sam Talent, also the author of the book, Running the Light. Coming up, one more segment with Sam on the other side. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Final segment with stand-up comedian Sam Talent. He is also the author of the excellent new book, Running the Light. Now, Sam is performing here in Austin this weekend, headlining Joe Rogan's comedy Mothership. Unfortunately for you, those shows are sold out, but I do still encourage you to check a show out at one of the best comedy clubs on the planet. For tickets and info, you can go to ComedyMothership.com. Now, you were in Paris up until this last weekend, I believe, for a couple of weeks. Uh, just yeah. how cool is that? And do you have a, a favorite memory or moment from your time overseas? So, like, July 19th, I went to Japan for a week. And then I was in Australia for a month. And then I was in France for three weeks. So I don't know if I'm just in like the honeymoon, like post-coital period of traveling abroad and being gone for two months. Because like I travel as much as I possibly can. That's why I love Ari so much and Michelle Wolf because they've carved out spaces in their life to go and live. And a lot of comics like don't really reap what they've sowed as far as like they make so much money. And then it's like, well, when are you going to go live? You know, like how many commas do you need in your bank account before you like reward yourself, you know? And I get it because you don't want to take your foot off the gas once the engine's revving. I get that. But uh, 
yeah, man. I mean, I've just, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I was in, uh, I was in Belle Isle and Mare, uh, which is not how they say it in French, but that's my awful guttural American pronunciation. <laughs> um, and I was just on the street with like my buddy Greg and his wife and my wife. And there was this like band outside at like 2 a.m. playing in front of a fish market. The fish market was opening up for the morning. So all these people were loading fish in behind them. And this band was playing with like a wash tub bass, some strange kazoo, some homemade box guitar. And they were playing like uh, French anti-police anthems. And it wasn't just your like train hopping, scab eating ogle kids out there with their dogs and their Carhartt jackets. It was like 75 year old men dancing with their wives singing along to like you know uh, uh just these like i mean i don't speak french so my buddy greg was translating but they were very militant in their uh disdain for authority and to see all these old people knowing all the words because they're traditional french songs and singing along and like you know young punks dancing with like 56 year old women and arm in arm with these men who clearly love the police but they are you know French first, like just so many transcendent like on display. Like, freezes you. There's so many moments where you're just shocked with the beauty of the world. And I don't know. I don't see that. Uh, maybe my eyes are closed to it in America because I've been to, you know, Austin 20 times, and I've been to Kansas City 15 times, and I don't like have my eyes tuned in to just like the the little moments of uh of uh of, of just like you know unctuous beauty that are around you at all times but man i see it when i'm abroad and i'm just like such a caricature i'm such a hack american out abroad just being like oh my god this is the best croissant i've ever had oh my god these snails i've never had snails like this it's just like I just live like a girl who went away, you know, her freshman year of college uh, on some kind of exchange program and, you know, took many lovers. But my lovers are food and like <laughs> wine and uh, the best baked goods ever, you know. That's a pretty good place to uh, take those things on as lovers. But that's why it's important, though to exit your comfort zone and to steps outside of that box because up to a certain age, you can't help but to take your natural surroundings for granted but it's when you go sure. those other places and you are forced to really use your brain and pay close attention to what's going on because if you don't you're going to end up completely lost and not knowing what to do next that ultimately i think allows you to come back to that home base appreciating what's around you a little bit more too oh yeah dude i mean i don't speak a word of japanese and i made it through japan for three weeks this year Two in January, one July, like, you know, uh, I went to Ecuador for the month of May because my wife was down there doing like a Doctors Without Borders thing. She's a, she's a family medicine doctor. So we were in Ecuador all of May and, you know, I've been studying Spanish, but when you're implanted in a Ecuadorian family's house and they don't speak any English, you really figure out how to make them laugh quick with your limited Spanish. Because if they're laughing, at least you're connecting in some minute way. It's like, I can't, I'm not going to sing them songs. That'd be insane. But like, you know, uh, just immersing yourself in, in culture, like, you know, dude, we don't have much time uh, to be alive. And I really want to like 
live as much as I possibly can before I'm interned into the earth or whatever. What was the most common way you made your uh, Ecuadorian family laugh? A lot of like uh, asking like if a plantain was an apple or uh, picking up like a pear and asking what kind of cheese it was. That was a good bit, you know? Uh, oh, um, putting apple juice into my coffee and ask, saying that the uh, milk tasted funny. That was a good bit. It's just a lot of like, you know, very childish stuff, dude, but it transcends. It's seeing a big fat guy confuse milk for, uh, you know, apple juice. That's going to work in any language. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. All right. Last thing before I bid you adieu, Sam. I, uh, I love going to see stand up and have been to uh, a lucky number of shows at the Mothership and at the New Cap City and Vulcan. Haven't been to some of the other places yet. Creek in the Cave is another one that uh, offers up good shows most nights of the week. Creek rules, yeah. But Huge I've got, fan of Creek. It's got a uh, it's it's kind of like the uh, the CrossFit gym for comedy clubs in Austin because the air conditioning doesn't normally work, and especially on those hot summer nights. You're just going to sweat your balls off laughing to something. But as a result of seeing comedy so much, I'm starting a running list of the unwritten rules of a comedy club from the audience perspective. Because I see a lot of people who are trying to get into comedy now, which is awesome. We're in a golden era for stand-up. But a lot of people don't understand how to properly conduct themselves at a club. Like I feel like I'm around this way too much. Where you have some Yahoo who's trying to go Mystery Science Theater 3000 while the comedian is on stage, either setting up a bit or trying to get laughs here and there before that ultimate punchline. And it's like, dude, shut the fuck up. Nobody's here to see you. Sit there, respond when you need to respond, laugh when you need to laugh, and stop trying to be funny to the person next to you. All it's doing is annoying anybody else in your immediate vicinity. So I set all of that up to ask you from the stage side of things, what is something that you hope is understood as an unwritten rule for the audience at a comedy club? Well, I'll just completely co-sign everything you just said. Uh, that's... Uh... Couldn't agree more, brother. Yeah, shut the hell up. Um, not everything is a crowd work clip. We're not all trying to get clips. Some of us are just trying to do like organic, funny comedy, and sometimes that means improvising with the crowd. Uh, I'll say this. I would say tip the waitstaff. Uh, I, I, maybe it's because I've been doing it for a long time, and when you start stand-up, you're the first thing you do is toast. And uh, I remember I got moved up the ladder real quick at Comedy Works in Denver, where I'm from, because I would always, in between comics, say, let's take care of that waitstaff. One more round of applause for the waitstaff, because they're working really hard. Like, they're on their feet. They have to be hunched over the whole time. They have to, like, whisper and, uh, you know, be very, very tuned in to the needs of, like, however many people are in their section 70 and also they're trying not to like interrupt the comic. They're trying not to distract too much from uh, the enjoyment of the crowd. Like being a comedy club waitstaff member is a lot of like benched hours on concrete, you know, uh, just completely like seahorse posture as Stan Hope would say. So yeah, take care of them because if they're doing their job, you're never going to notice they're there. And they're really, really going to enhance your experience. So yeah, just be be uh, be generous with that waitstaff because they uh, they're really the forgotten heroes of the show. Like if they're bad at their job, the show sucks. And when they're great at their job, no one even realizes they're doing a good job. 
So it's a real thankless task in there. So, you know, drop a couple extra more bucks on them. Love that. It is a great addition to the list. He is Sam Talent. I tell you to go to ComedyMothership.com to grab tickets to his headlining shows this weekend. They're sold out. There may, may still be some tickets to tonight's show, though. So go to ComedyMothership.com to find out about that. And also make sure to check out his book, Running the Light. It is fiction, but it's a fictional account of a longtime entertainer and comedian who is going completely off the rails. It is a week in his life. Well worth the price of admission to read it or get the audio book, which is read by a number of different comedians that we've talked about throughout the course of this conversation. You can go to samtalent.com to see where Sam is performing next and also to follow him on social media. Sam, thank you so much for the time today, man. This is a real pleasure. Trey, thank you. Yeah, if you want to get my book, buy it off my website. Uh, don't support Amazon. I'll sign it for you. It's five extra bucks, but you get my signature, you get my stink on it, and uh, you know it doesn't go to Bezos' ex-wife. So, You know what? I normally link to uh, bookshop.org because they support independent bookstores, but I'll make sure to include a link to your website for folks who want to buy the book by connecting to the interview first. I love bookshop.org, but yeah, like, you know, if you really want to go right to the source, you can support Too Big to Fail Press directly. Uh, And then I get your email, too, which is invaluable for promotion later on. Damn, Skippy. Enjoy Austin, Sam. Thank you, Trey. I'm very happy to have been on here. Thank you for having me. All right, another show is in the books. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow at 10. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the night and... Sweet dreams. It's the Night Talker with Trey Ellings.